Today, at the SDGI Directors in Dialogue, directors Sir Alan Parker and Michael Apted discuss filmmaking with fellow director Paddy Brannock. First of all, do you feel uh, any, any sense that working with a writer that you have to, that there's a sort of faith that you have to keep with that person or is, is it um, uh, more of a perfunctory relationship, let's say? Um, well, for myself, I'm, I'm really not a very good person because I've had some very bad relationships with uh, writers, uh, some good, but mostly I've written myself. And it's always difficult because I started as a writer. Um, I tend to lose patience probably sooner than someone like Michael would do with regards to... And I don't know, I don't know that I'm particularly skilled, really, at getting the best out of them. It's such a delicate situation with regards to, you know, depending on, on at what stage you become involved in the film, you know, whether, you know, if it's a novel that you come in at the very beginning and then you work with the writer, uh, in the end the writer is going to have to go away anyway to get on with it because the work has got to be done. And then uh, I've, I've had ex- examples where, um, for instance, on Midnight Express, Oliver Stone came to my office in uh, Soho, and uh, he was in the back office for, uh, it was about six or seven weeks, tapping away on an old-fashioned typewriter. And so it was agreed that once he'd finished and delivered the screenplay that, um, that I would get on and write my version of it. And, uh, because obviously what he was going to do was going to be rubbish. Um, uh, unfortunately, he delivered the best screenplay I've ever read in my life, to, even to today. And uh, he won the Academy Award for it. And uh, uh, I didn't see him again until uh, the Golden Globes, and, uh, which he also won. But, uh, yeah, he did win, and he won, he won the Oscar too, but uh, I hadn't seen him. I didn't want him to at the film with me because we just didn't get on, but he was a very brilliant writer. I might ask you another question about that in a, in a bit, but just just that idea of not wanting somebody on set, um, and as an extension of the, the sort of uh, is there an honour code with the what writer to some extent, or is there an aspect of having to coax something from them like like uh, an actor and that you have to when you do that you move on, or uh, what's your experience being? Well, I'm the, slightly the reverse because I don't write and I have no confidence in my ability to write so I'm very uh, loyal to writers Um, the business about having them on the set I quite like that unless it's a distraction to the actors well I always feel a strong moral obligation really to stick with them Um, unless you're doing something which is almost manufactured in a sense when you do the bond for example you know, you had a writer come in to do the story, then you had another writer come in to do the women's parts, and you had another writer come in to do the gags. And that, was, that worked pretty well. It was an unusual experience. But, you know, I've had difficult times with writers when things haven't worked, and as I get older and time gets shorter, you think, we have to stop this. You know, this isn't going anywhere. Um, but generally, I have the reverse from Alan, but I think Alan has the confidence of knowing that he can fix it. 
it, it's that sense, I suppose, where who owns it, you know, uh, you know, where there's somebody else, if somebody's yeah. written something, they obviously have an ownership of it, you know, and a very important creative ownership of it. But yet, in order for it to become uh, a film, mm. you have to take that over somehow as well. I think that How you... you yeah, yeah that? I think that... Uh, Unless you acknowledge that film is an organic process, you're not going to make a good film. It doesn't matter what the source material is. And, uh, in fact, The Commitment is a classic example. Roddy Doyle's novella, if you probably know, is a very tiny, tiny little book. The beauty of it is that you read it and you laugh out loud on every page. And I did too. Roddy had a go at doing a screenplay that, they were, that was not uh, able to be financed. So Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, two very good, if not two of the best writers of, of that genre, uh, whatever that genre is, um, they uh, then did their version of it. I then came here to Dublin and I spent a long time preparing that film. It was like four, four, uh, over four months just in the preparation, five months sometimes, uh, nearly. And, uh, uh, and during that process, things occurred that I had seen by being here, you know, we discussed earlier about, you know, only to visit Ballymun or, or Dandale, you automatically want to put things into the screenplay which are not there. Certainly one in a novella. I completely changed the nature of the music, which is, you know, is different kind of soul music entirely in the novella. And all of that, the process of, of discovering the music and the musicians and all those things gave textures and colours to the thing that I then worked again on the final process which with Dick and Ian here in Dublin when we did the final version of the screenplay which had come out of so many different things you know the original obviously the most important thing was to always be truthful to the honesty and the spirit of Roddy's book and I think we were but actually it became something quite quite different very different to how the van and snapper were made by Frears it's maybe so that, that at some point in that process there's a shared, uh, something shared between you and if, in that instance it was the book or whatever, that the spirit of the book was shared. Well, I mean, I found a huge difference when I went to America. When I worked with English writers, they, they were very proprietorial about the script, very much because most of them had worked in the theatre. I don't think on the whole people, people of our generation started in the theatre, I think. I suppose. But anyway, I mean, they would give you the script and that was it. You know, I mean, they would make changes for you, but they were changes. When I went to America and worked with the guy who wrote Coal Miner's Daughter, it was always a work in progress. It was always what Alan is talking about. It was always um, a growing thing, an organic thing, and things. And it was automatic. I mean, when he delivered the first draft, he said, well, this is just the beginning. There was no sense that any of this would ever get on the screen. Mm. And I just found that such an amazingly refreshing change. But I think, again, because American writers are much more brought up in cinema and, and television and That's whatever. That's somehow it's placed in the middle or whatever. And that yeah. Can have a yeah, and it's a shared organic thing that has to grow, has to change. Just that you bring up the coal miner's daughter. Um, say, for example, with a film like that, that has a, has a sort of... Um, in some ways, it was very ahead of its time because it has a spareness that has emerged as a, as a, um, a style now that's, that, that's very effective and, and powerful. And, but do you, how do you bring... I'm trying to think of it. How do you bring your own particular atmosphere... 
Okay, do you bring it into the script? Does it, do you, do no, you graft I, it into the script, or is that something that happens in the direction? Well, I, I think it was my attitude towards it that, you know, we were both grew up a bit under the influence of Loach and the kind of the British neo-realists, as it were, ever. And, you know, my instinct when I made the film was to go out there and shoot it on location, use only two people in the film had ever acted before, or three. Um, I used local people, I used local musicians, I used local disc jockeys. I shot the places in places that Hollywood had never been before, in, you know, in the Appalachians and all this sort of stuff. So, you know, that in a sense changed the whole nature of the script, but... Rickman, Tom Rickman, who wrote it, you know, was part of that process with me, and he, he was able to respond to the kind of the texture or the context, I mean, that I brought to doing the movie. I mean, the studio wanted me to shoot it on the back lot. You know, when I would have used America, you know, I would have used Los Angeles actors and put funny voices on them and all that sort of thing. And we even, sh- you know, we even shot the music live, which was they nearly had a cow when they heard I was going to do that. But so I brought to the script in a very indirect way. I wouldn't have written a word of the script, but by the way I approached the material, in in a sense, moved the script into another direction. And what was so great about Tom was that he responded to that. He could see the value of that and embrace that. It's very interesting, interesting, is that, you know, you get some... I mean, I know that from... If if it's a script that I'm writing, and I'm writing it at the same time as I'm preparing it, uh, or, or researching it, put it that way. I'm very explicit about the atmosphere. If it's someone else's writing it, not me, I don't want them to be explicit about the writing of it because it's so much easier. You know, I wrote with a very, uh, made a film uh, called Shoot the Moon with a great writer called uh, Bo Goldman. And Bo wrote in such a beautifully spare way. It was fantastic to be able to take one of his scenes written because it didn't really commit you to this or that or whatever. It allowed it was it was a, a place to start with to go on somewhere else. Now, as uh, Michael knows, if you read a William Goldman screenplay, they're like they're in their instructions within the script that say brackets. Now, 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 you fancy schmancy film director, don't get carried away here. <laughs> when I'm say a, a simple man, I mean a simple man, you know. And when you read that, you just want to punch him, really. But uh, it's, there are... That kind of specificity uh, it's, it's is, is annoying. Yeah, yeah and then to have to untangle it, if your view of how the film is going to be, if you have to untangle that and... Uh, the problem, I suppose, if a script goes out, it's treated like a Bible and everybody then takes <coughs> things literally that maybe have no value for you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. When I was given the job of... Uh, doing the Bond film by the head of MGM then he said uh, two, th- two things he said this picture will open in 11 months time in you know, 3,000 screens here and I don't want to see a single word of this script in the film <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, encouraging yeah, I thought yeah. and that was the script that was given to him <laughs> If, given that you, ha- you know the script is locked off and you have a script going into production, um, there's an aspect of um, I know in my own career, maybe the first few things I did, I, I didn't have a great confidence to go beyond that. Um, I heard a story, and I don't know if it's true, uh, about uh, Midnight Express that uh, you, you jettisoned a whole act uh, in that film. Uh, and you had a, quite a struggle um, with studios and everybody else to do that. 
Um, would you talk a little bit about that, and maybe, and maybe Michael pick it up as well, about the confidence to go beyond? Well, it was, again, it's back to the organic nature of, you know, the, the work, really, is that uh, the original uh, true story on which it was based, uh, and then Oliver Stone's screenplay, um, was, first of all, um, it was, uh, he was never in one prison. He was in a number of prisons, and one of the last prison was an island prison, and he swum, he escapes by swimming to a, uh, um, to a rowing boat and gets away that, that way. And then uh, I condensed it into one, one, one prison because it was just to keep the tension all there and also characters that you created like John Hurt would have all disappeared and so that you keep all the people together anyway did that but um, um, the, it, uh, Oliver had written um, whole sequence once he escaped from the, the prison uh, on the Greek border being chased by um, uh, the army and tanks and, and then he swims across the river and all those things and then I had rewritten the whole way in which he escaped from the prison. I redid that when I was in Malta, where we filmed it. And a lot of it came out of the actual uh, the, the architecture of where you work. Because sometimes a scene can change. If you're playing a scene on a staircase in an alleyway, it's different to when it was just, you know, once in, the, in a kitchen, you know, or whatever. And so a lot of it came out of this, this extraordinary building where we were. And I rewrote the whole thing. And the end of Midnight Express that I wrote was he th he's, he's thrown the keys to his, by the guard for his freedom. And I, did, I rewrote this scene and the, the day before we shot it, and I shot it, and then he opened the door uh, at the bottom of these stone stairs and the sun came in and you felt fresh air because he was, he was getting out of this hideous prison where we'd been for two hours already. And uh, that's green time. And then he, he goes to, to, to freedom. And uh, I said to, to the producer, David Putnam, I said, the film's finished. It's, we saw the, the, the rushes and we, I said, it's, it, it's, it's ended. And we didn't know that it was going to end until I'd shot it. And I said, that's the end. Watch how he opens the door. And the door opens and you can feel the end of the movie. Whereas there was a whole 20 more pages to shoot. So I said, it's just madness. Also, we had to go to Greece to film it, and we had, had it all wrecked, and we were all ready to go. We had the, the, all the travel arrangements for the entire crew to be going to, to, to Greece to film all this stuff. We had the tanks ready and all the stuff. And I, and I said, it's absolute madness. And um, so Putnam said, all right, I'll try. And so um, he phoned them first, them being Columbia Pictures, and they went crazy. They absolutely said they'd sue us because we had been, we'd been employed to shoot that script. And I said to him, it's madness, apart from the fact that you could go and shoot it and it would just waste a lot of money, and it, but it's very, it would be demoralising because I knew that the film had already ended. And so it, the deal he did with them was, um, look, let us finish it, bring it, we're going to edit it in England, we'll let finish it, we'll show the, you how, how we think it can end. And you can either like what we've done or if you're still adamant that you want these last 20 pages shot um, we'll go back and do it and he thanks to him uh, he persuaded them that we'd do that and so 
we took the finished film. Sorry, I'm hogging. No, this is interesting. I took the finished film to Los Angeles to show to them for the first time with a new ending. And they were very touchy about it, the studio heads at the time. And uh, they sat there ready for this thing. And the terrible thing happened is that uh, the projectionist got the last two reels back to front. And so we're sitting there and Billy Hayes is in the prison and then the reel changed and he's walking out the prison. <laughs> but the whole bit of how he got out is not there. They looked at me like, this is your ending? <laughs> and uh, I said, no, no, there's a mistake. This just, you know, the lights went up and I could hear this scuffle at the back. Putnam was, I think he was punching this guy. <laughs> and it's like, oh and so we put God. it back in the order and then they said, and in the end they said, you know, it does, it, it's fine, you were right. And they, they went with it. Yeah. It also helped, you know, we put music on it. So when that door opened and the light came in and they felt the fresh air of his freedom, was a swell in the music. And so it, it had a totally conclusive feel about it, you know. But it, until I'd shot it, none of us felt that way as written on the page, you know. Huh. Just uh, talking about like the, the film, whether it's set in the script and whether it's finished. Say, for example, doing a comedy. Um, I know in Critical Condition you work with somebody like Richard Pryor. Mm. That, and I'm, I'm imagining here. I don't know. Would would that have a huge impact on the script? And do you need to leave? Sorry, on the on the finished scene. Let's say. And do you need to leave a lot of space from where the script is for, for yeah. the scene to emerge? Well, that was a pretty poor effort. Um, I didn't have him at his best. I mean, I, I made a poor effort with it. But yes, you ha- when you have that kind of talent, you know, he's one of the great improvisers, stand-up comedians of all time. Yeah, you have to let them run with it. But I, I think, you know, just picking up what Alan has said, to me the most important thing about a script, this speaks to him knowing when to end it, is the structure of the thing. And that, although I can't write, I'm, you know, I, I get very interested in that. What is the actual architecture of the thing, hoping you know, that, that a, a writer can fill in the details, can do that. But to me, that's the most important thing about reading a script and writing it, whether the structure is solid. You know, as I said in my little bit earlier on about changing the whole structure of Amazing Grace, telling the order in which you, you told the film was kind of essential to the film working. Do, do you um, work on the script during the filming, or do you try and avoid that, or is this an inevitable uh, thing to happen? Well, it's not great. I mean, it depends what shape you're in. I mean, if yeah, the worst, you know, the worst. They say a rainbow script. But, you know, every time something gets rewritten and it's on different coloured pages in the script. And the more different colours, the, probably the worse the film's going to be. But uh, no, I spent many a Sunday day off rewriting a script for a, a scene for the next week, yeah. something that had, had, you know, not been fixed. And you'd kind of put it off and you try and solve it, but you hadn't, but you've got to fix it. And also, to say the whole organic nature of it is that what you you're seven weeks in, and then something actually doesn't really have ring true because of what else you've actually done before so to, to, to rewrite and adjust I've often done that but mm. I think that's because I write I probably wouldn't be so tempted if, if, uh, mm. if I didn't have the ability to do that and then you hear all these stories about how Casablanca was written it you know, every, every day there were new pages coming out and you think, yeah. oh, maybe there's hope for us yet. But usually, if you, I think if you're constantly rewriting, I don't mean 
taking actor input or taking location, but actually rewriting it. Um, you know, it's a nightmare. I mean, I had this horrendous experience on Agatha. Um, it's a film, actually, I never finished shooting, as it happens, but we actually had to make the story up as we were going. We weren't just rewriting the script, we were making the story up, because Dustin Hoffman came aboard to play a small role, and then just before we started, he was told by the studios that he had to have a major role and couldn't have a minor role. So we had to turn his role into a leading role as we were shooting the film. Oh, but that is... I, I can't even bear to think about it, but that was rewriting of, of the highest order. Do you, um, if you're working with a writer, do you let them work uh, through the draft and then come on, or do you do you work, say, on a beginning and concentrate on a beginning and then move on, or how, how it, does it depend on the writer you're working? You mean at the beginning of the process? What I mean is, do you work on the beginning of the film, like say, for example, if they've delivered a draft and they go back in and say, let's work on the first act and then move on, or do you let them uh, um, finish, go through a pass? Well, sometimes I find that you get so fatigued that if you keep starting at the beginning of the film, by the time you get to the third act, you're always tired. So sometimes, you know, third acts get the least attention because yep. of that. So sometimes I would start backwards <coughs> and work through, but on the early passes of it, I would go from A to Z, yeah. The worst thing for a writer is a, is a totally generalised note. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, you know... Com- if, you've got, if you're working with a writer and you want the best for them, they've got to have their space and their time to be able to do what they do. And then you as a director might want to, you know, you've got your comments on everything that goes the way through it. But it's like, I've been in so many meetings where you've literally, as, as Michael said, where you've got like to the end of the second act and then everyone's knackered and so you give up on it that day and then so or you do the if the if the writer's been flown in or something you you you, you speed through the last bit you know right. and it like which is a very very dangerous thing to do you know i think that it ought to be you have to give them time and, and space but by the same token as i say it should be specific there's nothing worse than a general note for a writer you know. and, and of course, particularly in America, it's a political issue as well. There's a lot of politics at work. There's a, a very poor relationship between the Directors Guild and the Writers Guild, yes. which is to do with ownership. You know, the, 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 the Writers Guild go apoplectic about the possessory credit and you know, always uh, either want to share the possessory credit or state that they are the originators of the, of the, of the piece, which technically they are so uh, a lot of what we would like to do creatively gets politics imposed on it and there are all sorts of rules now like the, the director can't fire if the, if the director comes onto a film and there's a script there and you say to the studios this script is poisonous I, we have to start again you're not allowed to do that you now have to meet with the writer the original writer or the writer who was last on it and go through the motions of trying to figure it out. So, you know, it's, it's a rather tense atmosphere. It's done for the right reasons, though. I mean, I think that, you know... I mean, I've been on the rotten end of that. Yeah, and I'm sure it In so much as... There was a time when a writer would take someone's screenplay and, you know, because of the whole notion of the auteur, they would rewrite probably badly a couple of scenes and then give themselves a credit. And that was why the writers protected themselves, and they were absolutely right to do that. It's gone too far the other way now. I mean, it's like Angela's Ashes was a screenplay was written, and uh, 
I went back to Frank McCourt's original book and wrote my screenplay. But there, the lady, whose name I can't even remember, I've never met her, Laura Jones, um, she wrote the first screenplay, so therefore you cannot shift that person. The same with uh, Juan Evita. Um, that was a project that was around for 20-odd years. And uh, I wrote the screenplay from the stage play. But actually, uh, Ken Russell and uh, Oliver Stone had written their screenplays years before, neither of which I saw. The difference is, poor old uh, Ken Loach wasn't a member of the Writers Guild of America, <laughs> so he didn't get the credit. Whereas uh, I had to go to arbitration, as they say, where you go into this horrible room where two other writers have read it and they come to the conclusion that uh, uh, there was enough of... Uh, I, I got first position, actually, on that because most of it was mine. But they said, well, no, it's very similar because um, uh, Madonna sings Don't Cry For Me, Argentina from the balcony of the Casa Rosada. That's just how Oliver had done his. You know? said, actually, that's what Hal Prince did on stage as well. <laughs> and also it's financial because a, a writer gets more money. Yeah. I split the residuals with him, yeah. Depending on the credit, so it can get rather tense. And just on that, uh, you brought up the visa. Writing music and songs into films, both of you have made films with a lot of music in them. Um, in terms of how that can affect the, the rhythm of a film in a way that this was the terrain, the terrain of a director, whereas often a writer will write songs into a script. Do you, do you jettison them often or, and then just start off on that again? Or, or how do you do that? Or, uh, well, I mean, well, the cardinal rule when I ever did it was you, the film can't stop still for a song. Um, I mean, he, he's done more... I mean, Vita is a real musical, so I'm interested in what he says, but, you know, writers gaily write down, she sings so-and-so. And you're thinking, well, what's, what's, what's happening to the movie? The movie yeah. can't stop. So that's one of the difficulties of doing films involving a lot of music. The yeah. film can't mark time while you sit and listen. Yeah. When I wrote a screenplay of Evita, and I, it called for my screenplay. I wanted uh, uh, Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. I needed 70 changes in the music <laughs> in order to cope with the, the, with the flow of the story. So, I mean, that was a back-to-front way of doing it, you know. On, on, on the other hand, I mean, I, can't, I hate reading screenplays where the, where the writer is suggesting the music that goes with the scene. <laughs> I get really annoyed at that. I don't know why. But, uh, did they make those changes for you? They did, everyone. Very good. Yeah. Uh, I might open it up for a few questions. Maybe we might come back to some of this if we want. Hey, at the back, yeah. Um, I- very interesting when um, Gerald was showing the uh, opening clip of uh, Mississippi Burning, and it's a quintessential kind of cinematic opening. But I wondered how you both deal with you've done your cinematic bits in the movie, and now you've got a two hander to domestic interior, and you're wondering how you're going to get around shooting this without going, Oh God, is this just going to be two over shoulders uh, close ups? And a, and a wide shot. What on earth can I do to freshen this up? How do you deal... Do you feel prisoners of coverage? I think it's very dangerous to think that... You know, if you've, if you've got a very simple dramatic scene, it's going to be a really, really great scene if it's beautifully written and beautifully acted. And, if, and therefore, why can't you just shoot over the shoulder and two-shot close-up? You don't have to always keep being tricky for the sake of it. The beauty of a scene is it comes from the heart of what's in it. Not 
you know, I think it's a dangerous if you think that, uh, you know, you have to shoot it through through the light fixing in order to make it come alive. If you have to do that, then there's something probably wrong with the writing of the scene. Because I do think that uh, you can have, you know, it also has to do with the rhythm and the pacing of any kind of film, is that audiences get exhausted if you keep on and on. You know, there is an argument, for instance, a director that I really, really admire, uh, Paul Greengrass, British director. Um, but there are, there are times in his films, because it's a shot with two cameras, handheld cameras on long lenses, and there is a mountain of coverage. And the camera never moves, and, and also once, so that once you cut that together, there is a fantastic internal energy to all of those films. But actually, it doesn't stop for one minute to, to, to slow down. So I, was, I was watching the other night on the TV, they were doing a thing on, uh, there was a fantastic documentary on the actor John Cazale, and, uh, who was uh, in five films, uh, and all five films won Oscars. <laughs> and... The five films, they had 15 nominations for the actors in those films, and he never got nominated. But this, there was, they showed you the scenes that he did, for instance, particularly the scenes in The Godfather and Deer Hunter in particular, which were so... Uh, you think of The Godfather as the most magnificent piece of filmmaking, um, and yet it doesn't actually... It's not fancy-schmancy filmmaking at all. It's immaculate filmmaking. It's absolutely perfectly chosen, the shots that are needed. And uh, there, there's no need for the Steadicam in any single scene, but it's just, and it's, you know, Gordon Willis photographed it, and Gordon Willis is notorious for not wanting the camera to move because he wants it lit in a very particular and specific way, you know. But uh, there is something, but the, you could never say the, the Godfather doesn't have an internal energy. It's got an extraordinary energy. But actually, each sequence is pretty considered. And there's no handheld wobbly camera work at all. I just have to um, ask you both about your relationship with your own creative instincts and how you've noticed over the years and with experience has that relationship changed or become... You know, you were talking earlier about all the things you have to hold in your mind and, as a director at any given moment and, and how much you, you process it mentally and how much you will go with your instincts and what that might say mean to you. Well, I mean, it's a, tr it's a fact, uh, probably true of both of us, that a lot of people, that your best work is when you're younger. Um, there aren't many, I mean, someone like Clint Eastwood is an exception to that, but I get to worry that I overthink things now because I'm trying to figure it out and want it to be as good as I can make it, whereas before I just did things, I went in with things, I used to do so much work, different work and all that, and it wasn't, I don't mean it was effortless, but it, I just did it. I got on with it and did it. I was, and I, I just look at the stuff I've done and I wonder, you know, that it had a kind of slight freedom earlier on, some of the early television stuff I did, because you had to work so quickly and so cheaply and... Um, you weren't under the kind of pressures that we're under now. The business has changed. So much financial pressure and all that sort of stuff. And I wonder now whether I just get too agonized, I wake up in the middle of the night too much, because I'm trying to find my instincts and trying to find what I did when I was younger, you know. And, and I mean, I don't agree with the ages thing at all, but I mean, I think you're probably right about that. It always made, you know, film directing traditionally was a job that you could do till you 
you know, dropped dead and fell off the director's chair. And, uh, and many did, you know. But uh, if you look at, you know, Billy Wilder or, or Hitchcock or whatever, I mean, sure, you know, yeah. Chabral was just... Somebody just died. Was it Chabral? I can't remember. Somebody. Yeah, Chabral, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was not... It was, it was a job that you could do later in life. The thing is about the job is that it is physically incredibly demanding. Yeah. And I always, you know, I never used to, for instance, when I first started, I, I thought, I, I hated the idea of director's chairs. I didn't even allow anybody else to have them either. And um, in America, you know, they all want their chair with their name on it. It's all ludicrous. You ever have to have a whole van and a bloke to look after <laughs> the chairs. And it's like... And, and to this day, I don't, you know. And I, I, always, I used to have a box... You know, and I thought as I got older, I needed the box more often. And uh, on the commitments, I had a bent wood chair. And the prop, the Irish prop man, every day they took off like a quarter of an inch. And I used to think, it's getting a bit low. <laughs> and they gave it to me as a present at the end. I still have, I've got it on my wall in my office. It, you know, the legs are about that big. <laughs> I found myself needing... The good thing about a Bentwood chair is that you can it just you put it down it, and you can move it out of the way when you've got another shot. It doesn't... There's something not... There's something about uh, director's chairs. Do you sit on a director's chair? I can't Nowadays stand I do, yeah. You do? Nowadays director's I do. bed, you probably need. <laughs> but I think that... Uh, there's another interesting thing. The whole mechanics, you know, with regards to... You know, I started on film without the... As he, he did too, which is without the the invention or notion of, of video p- playback, which is a huge difference yeah. with regards to you're the only one who can say when it's just film, that's it, move on. The sh- the, we've got the shot because I've seen it in the back of my head and that's done. You're also, you're looking, uh, as most of directors don't operate the camera. Some do, but mostly they don't. Uh, you're looking at the the fire in an actor's eyes and I think that that's the only way that you can feel whether performance is right or not is, is by looking at the actual actors themselves in reality not through a TV screen and certainly not through the camera and, but by the same token the video assist is a wonderful way of actually checking that you've got it mm-hmm. right with regards to all the things especially if it's a choreographed camera movement or you know, every, anything to do with that you have to check and, and there is a sense of suddenly seeing it within the parameters of frame that actually makes you gives you a different judgment on it and but by the same token i feel that uh, so it is a great advantage so what i always think is that that uh, to be trapped by this thing like you know this video village in america i don't know it's it's like there's all the screens and there's all the producers and everybody's sitting in these chairs looking at your work and I, th- I don't want them there and i don't certainly don't want their opinion of what you're doing and and so I don't have that. A lot of directors, really very good directors, I was talking to Sam Mendes, British, very, very good British director, uh, has only ever known that system. So he says, I don't, I'm, I let the, the assistant director do it all, on the, which is a terrible thing. If you lose contact with your actors with regards to the first person that an actor should, when you say cut, the first person that the actor should look at is you, the director, to see whether you have approved of what they've done or not. That's That's... Absolutely. Without that, if they're looking at their first assistant director and somebody over there in a video village with a disembodied voice says, OK, is the wrong way to do it. You know, and I think this, oh, I call this the golden triangle. There is the actors whose eyes you need to look in. There is a monitor that you need to look at because to check the actual nature of the shot. 
And then there's the camera that you have to be close to because if you're, not, if you're too far away from the camera and, the, and, and your director of photography and operator, etc., you lose track of that process. So you have to be within distance of all three to be able to help all three. And I think that uh, that's something that's really changed in recent years with regards to the, the technology of the, the video right. playback. Which no, never, it's even more frightening. It, I used to sit on the dolly. It's the only way I ever knew for years and years. That, you know, and in fact, I'd get excited and the cameraman would go, oh, God, he's moved the camera again, you know, because he'd go, oh, that's good, yeah. Uh-huh. <coughs> and, uh, but because being by the camera was what you would see, you know. Ridley, for instance, Ridley, uh, Scott, Ridley, uh, for years, Ridley is a fantastic camera operator. And uh, actors found it very disturbing because the voice they heard directing them was be- behind a gigantic Panavision machine. <laughs> and they never could see him, you know. They need to see in your eyes pleasure at what they've done, the actor, and, or, or distress, or whatever it might be, in order for them to feel that you're as involved in dramatic, um, emotionally as much as they are, really. And I think that... It's not, they've got to look in your eyes as much as you look mm. in theirs. Well, I was going to say, now you can pump the stuff straight into people's offices. They can see you, what you're shooting as you're shooting it. 6,000 miles away and things like that. It's mm. alarming. I saw that operate that bit. I was in North Carolina at Wilmington Studios, and George Lucas, uh, Lucasfilm was making a film. The director was the English director, Mel Smith. Yeah, Mel Smith, yeah. And George was looking at the stuff in Northern California. And he had a speaker in mm-hmm. on the stage, and Mel Smith would go, "Great, excellent, move on." And then they'd hear this voice saying, "I think you need another take," <laughs> which is George Lucas's voice from uh, Marin County. I hope you don't mind me asking. Uh, I don't know if it's a fair question, but which of each other's films would you say you admire or possibly be inspired inspired you? <laughs> well, I. I asked whether I could say The Commitments because it genuinely is, I thought, a wonderful movie. I wasn't toadying to the audience or the, the city we were in, but I, I love that film. I thought it had a huge <coughs> warmth to it as well as you know, sensitivity to it. I thought it was lovely. Um, actually, uh, there's a lot of his films I like, but actually the thing that absolutely I am, as age seven years goes by, that just... <laughs> astonishes me is what he's achieved with regards to the 7 up, 14 up 21 up, 28, where are you, what year are you now? 56 56. Is, this is uh, Can I tell my story about you and the up films? Okay. Is, is anyway, the, I think it's well, the greatest document that anyone has ever done in documentary and well, thank you, thank you. Well, well I was in the process of losing the second one in, uh, after 28 who I, the guy I liked a lot from Liverpool and I went to see him and I took him out to dinner and we sat down and he said, let me ask you one thing. He said, why don't you make good films like Alan Parker? <laughs> so I said, well, very good. So we discussed that, blah, blah, blah. And he said he wouldn't do it and all that. So then I, I came back and I rang Alan or bumped into Alan. And I said, can you do me a favor? Could you ring this bloke up in Liverpool? Because you're his hero. And see if you can persuade him to be in it. And I would love to have been a fly on the wall when the phone in this bloke's Liverpool house rang, picked it up, and at the end, Alan Parker here. I you said, didn't succeed, but you did try. I said, yeah. I said, it's Alan Parker. I'm, I'm funny from Los Angeles. He said, get out of here. So why not? <laughs> and I, I put the phone down, and uh, I was great. 
pleasure. I said to Apted, I said, I've done it. Got him, just like that. And the next day he said, no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, at what budget level do you lose final cut? Cripes. Well, I mean, I mean, I've never really had final cut. Um, it just it depends what the, the project is, I suppose. I mean, we've both done films that have cost five million and two hundred million, so it depends what it is and how long it is. It's uh, it's usually it is attached to the budget and the running time final cut, but it depends what it is. It's no fixed immovable figure. I think you only have it if it's a very low budget. Now I've, I've always had final cut, but my final cut, I have to say, and and. More and more, the recent films is uh, it is described in such a way that it's not actually final cut. You know, it's final cut after three previews. You have to be on budget. You have to have been all of the rules that they want in order for them to get what they want out of it, the studios, in order to give you this supposed final cut. You know, but it's it's becoming rarer and rarer to be given it. And I don't know many people outside of, of people like Spielberg, um, who's actually whose who's studio is paying for the film. Um, who actually really truly have it anymore because uh, I think it's so described on the side of um, you know the, the financiers that uh, the notion of um, and again I have to say I'm talking about working within the American system I'm sure it's very different if you're working in France or Germany but I mean uh, it is more and more difficult basically as Dino De Laurentiis said you want Final Cut then make it for no money and after they, the studio, I suppose, still has the ultimate thing is that they're going to distribute it. So, you know, they have that power over the film always that they can tell you, well, we're not going to let it go out. Yeah. So even if you have final cut, there's still that mm-hmm. ultimate sanction. You know? Yeah, it's not a good idea to alienate them, but, I mean, the whole process is so political. You know, trying to navigate your way through this minefield that is your modern film. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. one of the ways, you, one of the things you have to navigate is to get the cut you want, right. to know what to horse trade, to know what to give up and what you can't give up. I mean, uh, you spend your life now. I've spent the last year of my life doing that, navigating this labyrinth, this minefield of uh, you know, what I must have and what I'm prepared to, to give up to, to get something, uh, make it worth doing. Yeah. Uh, I mean... I'll go over here, how you doing? Hi, thanks, Sally. Uh, you both talked about the complexities and challenges of making movies, and yet you don't come across like you'd like to give it up. So what do you love about film directing? Well, it's all I know how to do. Um, <laughs> well, I do love it. I love the process of it. I love the whole idea of it. But, and, you know, I don't mind the struggles of it. It, it's, it's, it's very, very tiring, and I wouldn't want to do anything else. But... Uh, it doesn't mean it's easy to do. It doesn't mean it's even fun. But as I remember you, you saying, there's nothing quite like that feeling at the end of a day when you've got the day, as it were. I mean, it's a small thing, but it's a feeling of having something to set out to do and, and to do, you know? But I couldn't think I'm dreading forcible retirement. <laughs> oh, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> No, you get, I, I, no, I actually think, that, you know, the, the sort of being up to my, you know, waist in pig shit in Mississippi is not something that actually appealed to me a lot lately. <laughs> it's, uh, um, it, that kind of, that side of it. Um, 
the camaraderie of the film set is quite wonderful and the actual that sense of uh, when you see something magical occur and you've actually captured it and it's on film um, is a fantastic feeling um, it's, it's, it's nerve wracking because you never know if the film is going to be any good or not you never know until you know until an audience experiences it for the very first time but uh, the, 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 the process um, has become more and more unenjoyable because of the, the sheer difficulty of, uh, of financing films in the area that I work in it's, it's very very difficult you know I mean I decided rightly or wrongly not to do the Narnia route which is gigantic films special effects which uh, you know Aptid does very well and doesn't mind doing I decided a long time ago rather stupidly when they, they asked me to do Harry Potter <laughs> um, they asked me to do it and I said and, and I had to it was a bit late at night when I had a conference call with Warner Brothers and there was ten people on the other end of the phone and uh, I think I might have had a bit too much to drink actually and uh, I said I'm not going to audition for them on the phone and ten people put the phone down on me <laughs> it was quite an experience really but, uh, but making films that, but to make serious films of some scale uh, about uh, important matters uh, are almost impossible to do within the American system at this moment in time you pray that these things go in cycles and unfortunately because of their obsession with going for younger and younger audiences the entire demographic has gone so young now and the nature of the films is such that actually an entire audience has stopped going to the cinema and those are the people slightly older that, that might have gone to see the films that I, I make but uh, it has become very very difficult and dealing with that side of things the studio side of things and you know having done it now I've done it 40 years you probably have about the same time mm -hmm. or a more longer actually is um, more difficult now than it ever has been and uh, and that side of it uh, is not pleasure that has nothing to do with the, the magic and camaraderie of the film set just wondering with so many concessions having to be made and compromises and Dilutions in the studio, and can your vision ever be vision ever be truly realised? Yeah, what's interesting is that in the great days of the cinema, directors didn't do very much. I mean, uh, the man who cut Coal Miner's Daughter, his his father was there. He said, "What did he cut?" And he said, he said "Some like it hot in Sunset Boulevard." So I said, "Christ!" And I said, "Well, how was that?" He said, "Well, Billy Wilder never went in the cutting room." I mean, in the, in the great, so-called great studio days, directors just finished shooting one film and moved on to the next one. The whole idea of the auteur, as it were, is, is a fairly modern thing. And John Ford, you know, in the same year he made Greats of Wrath and something else of significance, which I can't remember, he did, like, some terrible film, The Young Lincoln. He made three films in the same year that he made Grapes of Wrath, which is a masterpiece. It's, uh, and the only way you can do that is because you... You don't develop. They didn't develop the screenplays, and they didn't yeah. edit the film, so yeah. they went straight on to something else. So this angst we're kind of, you know, about oh how hard it is and all that. There was a time which produced magnificent films in the early days of sound films, when these great directors that we all hold in awe were just shooters. They went out, shot the stuff, and we kind of got not we, but our kind, our kind got spoiled with the whole thing. Suddenly we were involved in all the editing and the looping and the dubbing and the music and all that but these great goliaths of the film business just went in and shot the stuff and moved on to the next one. Um, any other questions? Uh, my take, okay. Uh, yourself? Just 
Do you have a working atmosphere on the set that you try to create, or is it dictated by each of them? Um, well, again, I, as, as I said previously, it, um, it does change from, from film to film. If you're doing a film with music, you know, if you're shooting the, the commitments or even Madonna, actually, doing the music stuff, uh, the fact that you're playing music so loud and you're filming at the same time, it gives a fantastic atmosphere to, to what you're doing, obviously. And I, I said previously that, you know, that... Our job really is to create an environment where everyone can be of their best. And, my, and everyone, it's not just about the actors who we have to nurture and be so careful with, but it's, uh, it's so that the cameraman can be of his best and the makeup and whoever. And uh, mostly that comes out of uh, convivial, happy sets. Uh, but the truth is, I'm sad to say, is that some of the best work can come out of really horrible atmospheres. Joe Losey, the American director, said that the, you know, Kiss of Death is a cosy film set where everybody thinks they're making a good film and actually they're not. But um, I, I don't really agree with that. I think that uh, th there has to be... It's not to say there's, not stre there's stress on every, every single film set and it can't, if it's too, too happy-go-lucky then that isn't right either. But I think there should be a sense of a level of professionalism where everybody feels that they're doing, that the hard work that they're doing and the hours that they're putting in is of some worth. And the person actually, the only one person who can actually make sure that they know that is the director. Because if you are not giving that sense of, of how, how special your, you think your film is, then no one else will. And last question. There was someone at the back. So, uh, yeah, just um, given that the Guild is celebrating its 10th anniversary, I wondered to what degree Sir Alan's been very vocal in the past about his views about how the British film industry should, should develop. Um, and um, to be, I guess, more commercially minded, do you think that um, given that you sort of belong to a generation of, of British filmmakers who had a kind of a a, a kind of a clear identity with this, perhaps coming out of advertising, Adrian Lyon, uh, Hugh Hudson, and uh, Billy Scott, that, uh, that there was a kind of a coherent, some kind of coherent idea of what British cinema was from, from your generation. Do you think there is anything that, as a, as a, as a, a generation of, of, of directors in this country, that we can work towards some kind of, for want of a better phrase, marketable definition in the way that there, there was to uh, some degree with you and uh, you could say with the Danes or the Dalmore and so forth. Well, that's a, a tough one because I think all of us, all of our generation, our, our peers in some ways all to a lesser or greater degree went to America. I mean, I literally went to America, but people like Frears and whatever, they certainly made American movies. And I think that's... I, I, I can't think of people of our... apart from Loach, of our generation, who created a whole body of work without embracing American cinema in some sort well, of way. Well, Mike Lee. yeah, that's true. The thing is, when we first started, there was no British film industry, so in a way we were forced to go to the United States. You know, we, it wasn't a choice to begin with. It was the only place where we could get our films made, or any film made. You know? I mean, Putnam was the film industry when we were both yeah. 
stepping out of him. But I think that changed, with, you know, certainly with regards to, you know, the subsidised movie industry, film industry in Britain, which is, you know, the, the people who have benefited the most from that are people like Mike Lee and Ken Loach, and they're the ones that actually are always held up as, as British films, as opposed to us lot are always... You know, whenever I go around the world, they, people are always surprised to, to hear that I'm English because I've only really made American movies. And, uh, but they, they, you know, for them it's a political decision to do it uh, because they feel that they only know that. And I think that, if to answer your question, is that um, the danger... My, my thing was not about com- commercial cinema. My thing was about cinema ought to be seen by more than your closest relatives, you know, <laughs> and, and that ignoring the audience... Is, is a dangerous thing to do. The Americans only care about the audience, of course, but I think that uh, there is a, there's a balance between what our, what our art form is and, and being able to uh, interest, entertain, move, and affect the politics of, a, of an audience. is actually the, the job we should do also. And too, too many films were not doing that, were not communicating. It was more that than, than being commercial. But I think from an Irish point of view, if the, the British film industry is not necessarily a very good example. You know, with regards to the government's decisions on things, we, are, we're, you know, we have had 10 years of stability, but this government has now changed all that. So we're back to everyone uh, right, scurrying around, and it's, it's chaos again. You have a very small country and you don't have a lot of resources from the point of view of money, but there's an enormous amount of talent here. And I think the most important thing is, is, that, uh, is that you should cut your cloth. You, know, you, can only, you can do wonderful work, but it doesn't have to be. Um, you, know, you can't compete with the Americans, and, so, uh, and neither can the British, quite frankly. We have two industries which you don't. You know, we have the industry of Pinewood and Shepparton, which is actually a service industry for big American films. And then we have an indigenous, an indigenous industry, which, um, you know, for 10 years has been pretty, pretty healthy. But uh, that, that, that might not be so in the next 10 years. Um, the Guild is quite young and it's been uh, great, and the industry here is quite young in many ways, and it's been great to get the received wisdom because we don't have a huge amount of received wisdom here. And uh, So thank you very much for coming over and sharing your wisdom with us. And also a, a sense of that collegiality, uh, which is very important, I think, uh, to push an industry forward, that there's a kind of sense of mutual support, and, and I'm very grateful for you to come yeah, over. Let me, before you, I mean... We don't want to sound doer here, you know, because I think <laughs> you, you've, you've got something really great going. I mean, just being in this room with all these people and in a small country, I can't get this half this number of people into, into the UK, into a meeting like this. It's true. And you've got a lot of energy. And if you do cut your cloth, as he says, all of you, and keep up the good work you're doing... You know, then things will happen. But don't just kind of look out as though there was some nirvana out across the Atlantic, because it's pretty grim out there. And I think what you're doing here is great. And, and don't be put off by us, because you know we've had a good time, haven't we? We've done all right, and <coughs> a lot of our best work was done in this kind of room. You know, the, the early films we did, the television I did. You know, that came out of very small resources. You know, so don't think that you, to achieve, to, to, to succeed, you have to go there and, and, and join up that club because it's not a very happy club at the moment. You're better off doing what you're doing now and doing it so well. Great. And thank you very much.
Thank you for listening to SDGI Directors and Dialogue. For more information on the Screen Directors Guild of Ireland, visit us at www.sdgi.ie.